2014 will go down as the warmest year around the globe in recorded history. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. What do four psychologists chatting about the climate emergency sound like? Well, you're about to find out. I'm Bron Gresham, and if I'm honest, this was a pretty impromptu recording. Dear friend and psychotherapist colleague Sally Gillespie, who recently authored The Climate Crisis and Consciousness, Reimagining Our World and Ourselves, was visiting from Sydney. And Christine Canty, neuropsychologist who I first heard through a climactic episode during the XR Spring Rebellion, was available. And believe me, that's a minor miracle. She is a busy woman. So we gathered on a dreary Melbourne day with my dear friend and colleague Carol Ride, President of Psychology for a Safe Climate, to chat together about the emotional side to the climate emergency and how we humans are being transformed through this experience together. All right, well, I'm hitting record. We are now live. Don't freak out. Everybody just say hello. 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 <laughs> Hello. We have a room full of women. <laughs> and not only women, women psychologists. I feel like there should be some kind of joke. Uh, yeah, a neuropsychologist, <laughs> a, a Jungian psychologist, a clinical psychologist, and a relationship psychologist all in the room talking about the climate emergency. Okay. Well, I thought, um, you know, we're, we're in conversation today in the wake of a two-day climate emergency conference that was held in Melbourne and I really wanted to acknowledge Carol uh, for being in the room as my kind of observer brain today. She's going to drop in little pockets of wisdom and questions and no pressure. <laughs> um, but I really wanted to acknowledge her and all the work that she's done with a particular group called DCAN, Darabin Climate Action Now, and a booklet that was um, produced through that group and Jane Morton as the author called Don't Mention the Emergency and just how powerful that booklet was in um, supporting the council, the local council, Darabin Council to declare a climate emergency in 2018 and look at where we are now with a whole two-day conference. What do you, how do you feel about that, Carol, being such um, a key person of influence within that process? Well, I think it was an influence in the formation of Darabin Climate Action now originally, but um, I think that David Spratton and Philip Sutton have had a lot to do with it in their book that they published, um, The Climate Code Red, in 2008. But, but Jane has certainly been a power of um, influence in the community around that book mm. and helping people realise that there were lots of precedents for talking frankly about the um, a problem that we faced and that that actually had people can bear the truth and that does cause them to take the, the action that's needed. Mm. It really uh, has quite a psychological lens to it, which mm. I think um, we're going to be talking about today, the many facets of that lens, but um, just helps with the digesting of the message and the catalyst for, for action. Um, so we are going to begin with Sally. Because congratulations on your newly published book, 
climate crisis and consciousness, reimagining our world and ourselves. I understand that the book has the accumulation of many, many years of experience and practice and dialogue and research. And just really curious, we're going to hopefully hear a lot about aspects of the book, but what have you kind of learned over the years about the journey people take when deciding to engage in action on climate change? Um, it's good, I think, to talk about it being a journey. Um, often people get focused on that waking up moment, and that's often a very powerful moment for people. But really, it is the start of a whole trajectory. Uh, if you stay in there with your engagement, and possibly as an activist, but there's many, many ways to engage with climate crisis. Uh, and it's what I've been writing about and researching about over the years has been the psychological experience of staying really engaged with with climate issues. Um, and so, look, there's a whole lot of things that happen. I did the research originally uh, in 2010, doctoral research, partly because I wanted to know what was going to happen to me <laughs> in terms of getting more and more immersed in climate issues. Mm. Uh, I think there's always a fear that we're just going to get more um, gloomy and, and despairing. And yet I, I felt that there had to be a journey. I could feel that enough within me, even as I was getting going through my original stages of immersion. Mm. And so I got a group together, and we spent a year really exploring what happened to us. There were activists, there were um, uh, people involved in policy and mm. artists and so on. So look, what's emerged from that research and what I've seen uh, subsequently is that we do trigger psychological processes of maturing through being engaged. A, a major step of maturing is when we become much less focused on the world immediately around us and all our own um, particular self-concerns and open up to a larger view. Mm. Carl Jung called this the relativization of the ego. It's the relativization of the ego, meaning not that we toss the ego out. We can never toss the ego out, mm. but we start to see ourselves within a larger context. Mm. And you know, when you engage with climate, you engage with ecological awareness. Mm. And that starts to give us a very different sense of who we are and what life is about. Mm. Um, and that brings meaning, it brings purpose, mm. and we become more resilient and creative as we get this larger context, not only in terms of ecological knowledge, but also in terms of working with others. We can never stay engaged and work with climate issues by ourselves. It's not mm. an individual issue. We mm. have to work collectively and collaboratively. And have you found I I there kind of waves of that um, process where you might be really focused on your own individual world and circumstances? I certainly have mm -hmm. that within my world. Mm -hmm. um, and then move into the space of the we and the eco and... Uh, did you find that within that group over that year that you kind of moved up and down in those spaces? Yes, to a certain extent, but you know, I think it's like any change of consciousness as, as psychologists, as psychotherapists know, you can't change your consciousness back. Mm. Once you've brought it in, it's always there. Mm. Yes, your own daily concerns mm. can come right up to the foreground and you, the, the, the large issues can go to the background, but they don't truly disappear. Mm. We have to stay in this place of negotiation. Mm. Um, and I think there's a lot of healing in that. Yes, it's demanding, but there's a lot of healing in that because mm. the neoliberal culture that we've has become so strong in the last 30 years has been very focused on individual worldview, individualism, individualistic worldviews, and mm. so on. 
And so there's there's a real healing and holding this larger um, picture there. And that sort of sense of purpose that comes with realizing the real work of our lifetimes mm. is one of healing, regeneration, re- reparation, mm. um, is something that kind of soaks through our being after a while, mm. I think. Mm. Mm. And thinking about the that healing process and wondering if there, there are elements of uh, that experience where you might have a period of, of despair or disillusionment mm. Mm. and then move into sense of meaning or purpose was is that is that it look it can all go together mm. it, it, it's not that you get to a stage and you'll all know this you've all been engaged for some time uh that you get beyond feeling grief or you get beyond oh, feeling that's thank you. <laughs> hopelessness oh, yeah. or despair <laughs> uh, it's more i think often i use the analogy of learning to surf mm. or deal with the cross currents mm. we had a lot of sea metaphors in our research and we talked about often being at sea or feeling the cross currents Mm. and also learning to to recognize that we have these ups and downs and finding ways to acknowledge them Mm. to contain them as best we can to know when we might need to step back and Mm. have breathers uh, how because we are in it for the long term it's not like you have to front up full-on every day Mm. Uh, Mm, that's an that's mm. a really important it is message Mm. isn't it because the sense of the emergency Mm. which that language has Mm. been introduced Mm. really in the more in the Mm. past few years emergency Mm. and crisis Mm. as opposed to climate change Mm. and that can bring with it that unrelenting sense of needing to constantly contribute and do and when Mm. we slow down there's almost for me personally there's almost more of a sense of panic when Mm. I slow down these days compared to maybe five years ago I was much better at that balance between reflection and action Mm. but now it feels like with this language that things are more intense and Mm. that's certainly part of the experience at the Mm. moment but I like to think ecologically you know and ecology tells us we need rest periods we need regeneration periods and eco an ecosystem systemic awareness tells us that when we step back someone steps forward you know and that's that's what it means to work collectively Beautiful. Um, so we do really need to look after ourselves and that involves periods of rest and regeneration at beautiful time. speaking of collectively I'd love to invite Christine into this conversation now and I can see she's leaning forward there's something that she's keen to say <laughs> so I'll, I'll let you take the take the lead I just um, wanted to mention that uh, I saw something the other day that talked about uh, climate activism as like a choir and said that uh, you know, for a choir to be able to hold a note for a really long time, there are people who need to step back and take a breath, but the note keeps on going mm-hmm. because everyone else in the choir continues. And I just thought that was beautiful and, and such a perfect, perfect analogy Absolutely. for climate activism. I love it. That's mm. gorgeous. Thank you for that analogy. Well, I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience or journey perhaps into activism because um, you've mentioned in... Um, in passing with me that you know you're relatively new um, since post the election that's when, when you were really catalyzed into action and just wondering what you've learned so far in, in this process of engaging with the climate crisis. Yeah so it, it really has been a, a journey for me so I guess I've been thinking about the climate and concerned and a little bit active for about 15 years but it was really not until the election I think I had this um, assumption 
that um, that they would get it and that they would do something about it. And when that didn't happen after the election, I had a real light bulb moment that, oh, I have to do something. I, mm. I have to do more. We all have to do more. You know, we, we have to do this. It's the only way it's going to happen. Mm. So I, I um, became involved in Extinction Rebellion. That's how I, I sort of started getting a bit more involved. And I think um, I really related to, to what you were saying before, the, the, you know, the cycle of coming around and the... Um, sometimes feeling a little bit more anxious when you're not doing a lot of a lot of work so I threw myself into mm. this and was very much um, very much doing doing quite a lot of work and and getting a lot of energy from that and really feeling like yes I'm doing something this feels good you know I felt really active but I got a little bit burnt out and then when I had to pull back and realize that I would um, I couldn't sustain this level I started feeling very, very anxious and I started feeling quite a lot of grief and quite a lot of anger, actually, which was one of the things that I found really hard to deal with because mm. I'm not generally an angry person. Mm. But I felt a lot of anger and I felt that my anger was being directed where it was not helpful. You know, I was oh. angry at just random people walking on the street. <laughs> which is, <laughs> And that was at that point that I thought, okay, I'm going to need to work on this. <laughs> this is not good. Mm. Um, but... What, um, as, as I kind of worked through that, I mean, essentially mm. what I tried to do is to just let myself feel it, you know, is to just take some time and sit with it mm. um, and, and work through that. And the, the next kind of light bulb moment that I, have, that I had was realising that it's only an emergency for me now. Like, I've only just realised that it's emergency now because of... Um, the privileged life that I've led until this point. So, so many people in the world have been living in this as an emergency for their entire lives. Mm. Millions and, and millions, probably billions mm. of people. And with that came this this light bulb moment of, of the privilege that mm. I have. You know, like I knew that I was privileged. I knew that mm. intellectually, but I don't think I had really, really felt it mm. so much until that moment. Mm. Um, and with that, came this immense gratitude mm. um, and that I found really really sort of helpful to work through but what I have found is that it's very much a, a cycle mm. so I still go through phases of, of feeling quite a lot of grief um, and and anger and what I try and do is just kind of flip it and I really like Joanna Macy's analogy of, of um, you know, the opposite side of grief being love, mm. that we feel this grief because of the love that we have with the, mm. the, the natural world and, and that connection with other people. Mm. And so what I try and do is, is sit with the feeling when it, you know, when I'm really feeling it strongly and mm. then try and reframe it as, as, as love and, as mm. and, and then try and reframe that into action where mm. I can. What I'm working on now is just f trying to find that magical balance of, of how much I can sustain in terms of my own personal life and what I can do. Mm. And that's the, that's mm. the, the never-ending challenge at mm. the moment. It's, the, it's trial and error, isn't it? And um, it sounds like through the experience of throwing yourself in, um, feeling that level of burnout and recognising that and then taking time to work through that, it sounds, I wonder if then the cycles of action and, um, you know, potentially, because it can both nourish and deplete. Yes. Um, but you kind of, I wonder, you get better at, at building the nourishing component and beginning to have really broader 
perspectives and I'm sure your background as a neuropsychologist has really helped with that that knowing you know the intellectual knowing of what we feel we can heal and the importance of recognizing the function of emotions Mm -hmm. like grief um, is around connection and love and every emotion has a really important function to motivate us to engage in a particular way Um, and so thank you that's that was such a wonderful um, beginning of navigating your journey and I feel like a lot of listeners are going to relate to that um, experience so uh, Carol looked at me just then and I wondered if she had something to say about her experiences of or, or current journey of you've been engaged with climate change action for over a decade now Yes, I can relate to Christine's um, the ups and downs and the the um, range of, of emotions that one has to deal with. But I was thinking as she was talking of how um, what she's talking about illustrates how difficult it is for people in the community to engage with climate change because they suddenly are immersed in a whole lot of feelings that they might not be able to name or contain. and. Mm. And that's very challenging and perhaps it helps us understand why people just push the whole issue away because Mm -hmm. they don't know how to handle the anger that's suddenly arising or the grief and they don't know that the grief has got a whole lot of faces Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. it's possible to work it through and and that it won't stay with aspects of it won't stay with them forever Mm -hmm. that they can move on to another phase Mm -hmm. and how hard that is for people who are alone without a group to to manage Mm -hmm. those huge feelings Mm. and really made me think feel so empathic to the Mm. citizen out there who's you know hears and understands suddenly how critical the Mm. crisis is but really doesn't is not used to naming their emotions Mm. and And how quickly those emotions can get activated I was just Mm. at the supermarket the other day and the, the woman in front of me had all these plastic bags. She had like one mango in a plastic bag. And I just instantly felt anger, like moral, huge moral outrage at this. And it took all of my kind of self-awareness and energy and effort to try to find some compassion or, or appreciation or understanding for that to, um, you know, diffuse how I was feeling. And I was just wondering for, you know, other people out there, who don't have, like you were saying, Carol, potentially a group or a space to work through these feelings, that the feelings then manifest in other ways and begin to really, um, even though it's climate change at the heart or a connection with nature or love of nature at the heart of it, they get confused with maybe a relationship problem or uh, there's just, um, you know, to know what really is going on for us within Mm. takes a lot of insight and practice. Mm. Yeah. I think I wanted to add to that too because I think we could all relate to that story of yours, Bron, is that in countries like ours where there's not anything like adequate government action, that for people who are aware, they're often carrying an extra burden of a sense of responsibility Mm. which can easily slip into a sense of guilt. And then, you know, the the other side of that is is rage and anger um, about inaction that that can mm. spill over these different places. And I think, you know, as well as developing psychologically engagement, ongoing engagement, asks us to develop politically and understand mm. where true responsibility lies and how that burden might fall unfairly on us mm. a, as individuals because of that lack of government action. Mm. 
And was one of the uh, outcomes of the climate emergency conference because there was such a display of activity happening, particularly at other local government council levels, do you feel like that focus has potentially supported the hope or regenerated that hope that, you know, maybe we, of course, we need national investment, but we also need the council investment and at least there's something happening there? Yeah. I mean, talk about facing hard realities. It's an incredibly hard reality. Mm. I know I've struggled with it a lot these last months, particularly with the fires, and I've certainly felt more anger than I have generally felt. Mm. It's a very hard reality to feel that that de- that mm. denial at that government level, both federal and often state too. Mm. Uh, and that policies are so short of the actual need. So we have to go grassroots and... The good thing about council, I guess this connects a bit to your point too, Carol, is that we need conversations to help us deal with the feelings. And at level of local politics, at community groups and so on, we get a bit more chance for real conversations, which might help us to, to identify the feelings and mm. then to be able to match them up with something like a, a an action that feels mm. a- adequate and doable. Mm. Yeah. Well, we're speaking about conversations now, and I, I, I know, Christine, you've written a, a little bit about conversations, and just intuitively we know how good it feels to be in conversation with someone when we feel deeply heard, we feel felt. We know that's so essential for attachment, and um, it's intuitive, but it's also helpful to understand why. Like, why from a psychological needs or a neuropsychological needs perspective, a conversation so essential? Why is it that they're so good? So I think there's there's a few kind of different factors here, I guess. Um, you know, the first one is just that kind of sense of connection and, and the, you know, the psychological factors of just being heard and understood and, and hearing somebody, um, having somebody really hear what you're saying and really hear and sit with those feelings with you. But I think um, just coming back to what Carol was saying about the, you know, the wider population and the feelings that this climate, you know, the climate crisis will bring up for people um, and that a reasonable response sometimes might be to, to stick your head in the sand because that's much easier than dealing and naming and understanding all of those feelings. Um, there's, there's kind of two sides to the, the coin, I guess, in terms of that. In one sense, you know, we need the conversations to, to activate, activate our limbic system, our part of our brain that, that recognises emotions and that is going to trigger the fear that will then help us to um, use our prefrontal cortex to make plans and take action and do something about it. On the other hand, um, at that, that's kind of, I guess, at a one-to-one level at conversations, and that's one reason why they're so important, because the more of those connections we can make for ourselves but also for other people, it helps them to, to take that a little bit further in terms of that, that link between the emotion and their actions. Um, in, in terms of the wider kind of population um, trying to take this on board, I guess there's some research that our brains actually prevent us from looking into. So we have the immediate kind of threat. So we're always looking out for an immediate threat and we will act on that very quickly if we see an immediate threat. Um, but there's some research to suggest that actually our brains will shut down a, a longer term threat. And it's um, the suggestion is that, that evolutionarily it might be because if you let yourself think about all of the possible longer-term threats, mm. you know, you could really 
cycle into to a, a huge big anxiety yeah. because there there are so many potentials and, and possibilities. Mm-hmm. So actually, there's some research that neurally our brains actually shut down some of that information mm-hmm. and won't let ourselves think about it. Mm. And I think that's happening at a at a kind of society wide level that it's just much easier to, to not take that information in and your brain is actually facilitating that mm. at, a, at a broader level of taking that information in. So that's why what we need to do to overcome that is to have one-on-one conversations mm. with people where you actually have a connection and where you talk about how this makes you feel mm. personally. Mm. So it's not some kind of longer-term abstract threat mm. that your brain can easily shut mm. down. It's linked to you. It's linked to how you feel about your children Mm. and your life and your fear and your grief Mm. for Mm. the potential futures. Mm. And then when you can make those neural links between your feelings and your emotions and then your frontal cortex, Mm. that's when you can start really taking some some serious action. So it's more kind of enabling for you to be effective and engaging in the now. Because I can certainly relate. We all all have worry (laughs) and just that... um, notion of that negativity bias that we is becoming much more known within the community as our mental health literacy increases Um, we're beginning to learn some really basic brain facts uh, one of them being the negativity bias and this the notion of what you focus on you amplify so if we're um, vulnerable our minds that we're all born with that we can't you know take back um, come with them an evolutionary advantage of focusing on the negative Mm. to protect ourselves to stay safe yet if we keep focusing on that we amplify our fear on that and then that fear can then flip into being ineffective it's like fear can be both beneficial and lead to action certainly for me that's what's driven a lot of my engagement with climate change Mm -hmm. but it can also lead into inaction the paralysis when it when it becomes kind of flooding of the brain absolutely and i think the, the the flip side of that is that you know what what's happening there neurally is that you have these these neural connections that are just um, you know reinforced over and over, and there is that potential to to um, for that to really uh, snowball. But the the flip side of that is um, you know I was speaking before about my experience of coming to this recognition of my privilege and and really feeling such intense gratitude for that. And one of the strategies that I've been using is to try and really actively practice gratitude. Beautiful. And there's some research that that shows that there's there's benefits to that and the and the reason why is because what you are then doing is forcing your brain to make neural connections that are the opposite to that negativity bias mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. like a positivity bias yep. that you are actively doing so yep. i think you know i think sometimes we you know people think about the whole you know write down three things that you feel grateful for for your day and mm. think oh, you know but it, there's actually a um, you know a, a neurological basis mm. to that. It's counteracting so, something else that's there in the brain. So there's a real um, there's a real research yep. you know basis absolutely. For that. And when you engage in a really authentic way, that's when there's power. And you feel you feel the gratitude and yeah. and you attribute it to you know life forces outside of ourselves. I, I want to bring you in, Sally, on this because. Um, in particular with trying to um, help us through when we feel frustration or anger at others because in clinical practice I see this quite a lot. I see relationships breaking up, families not speaking to each other because of the tension and the anger. And one of the things that you mention in your book is um, adopting a compassionate view of those who have resisted the science of climate change because of their worldviews. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about 
compassion and how that could support us in you know being with people who are not quite on the same page as us yes or completely in a different book in some oh. cases <laughs> thank you yes <laughs> <laughs> yes i'm not sure if i use the actual word compassion but uh, certainly understanding um because yeah it it, it, it gets no one anywhere when we just fall mm. into this frustration and anger and I think, you know, we have this expectation in our culture that things should be rational. And so, especially when you are with someone who's deni a, a, a denier and you bring up the science and then find out you get even more denialist, it can get very puzzling. But of course, mm -hmm. we know from research that the more you throw science at someone who's strongly in denial about climate, the stronger they will defend mm. their climate denial. So we've got a lot of research around denial now, and we know that what drives denial is people holding on to a sense of a worldview, and with that comes identity and social relations. So a lot's at stake. There are climate deniers whose you know, social world uh, revolves around having certain views, whose understanding of how the world works revolves around certain views. But I had a sort of a breakthrough moment of, around the Damas. I was, it must have been about 10 years ago, and I was watching TV. It was one of those panels, and there was climate scientists explaining to the audience, you know, the science, and they were, you know, keeping an eye on the denialists to see the, the effect it would have. And this woman got up uh, and, and said, you know, all this science, and she went into a big rave. And in the end, she suddenly blurted out, you're scaring me. You're terrifying me, you know, mm. and it was so, and I could see this, it was like a childlike look on her face. And I thought, this is it. There is an infantile terror within all of us when mm -hmm. we hear that the, the, the world that we know could go into such terrible disorder and our very survival is at stake. Mm. Um, so that has helped, that, that really helped me to understand for, for, for many of us. There is this terror. And it's not like any of us are free of denial. I certainly have my moments, you Most know. Most definitely. Because we live in a, a denialist society. And to yeah. operate in it, we often have to sort of shut down some of our awareness just to negotiate our way mm. through some of our days. So mm. it's, it is a continuum and a, and mm. a spectrum, and it mm. helps to know that. But I want to say, you know, you in Psychology Safe Climate did such a terrific job when you put your booklet out mm. on climate conversations. Mm. Um, and I've certainly drawn on that many times and had those own experiences of what it means, uh, of how helpful it is when you're with someone who's, who's doubtful or in denial to mm. be able to find those points of connection about what really matters to them. Mm. And... You know, I think we have had a problem. We tend to be a little bit too abstract sometimes in the way we've talked about climate issues and ways that are hard for people to grasp. Mm. But when you start talking about love of place or the kind of legacy you want to leave, leave your kids, mm. uh, there can be some real points of connection without actually having to get the person to say, and I now believe in climate. Mm. <laughs> you know, mm. you can still get them out there doing their bush regen gen work mm. or, or mm -hmm. doing some really positive mm. things. And, and you've done some great work, you and Carol, on this. I was thinking one of the things that's helped people in the way Sally's talking um, and really connects with what Christine's saying is that um, pa parents of children who are preteen are now adding on 10 years onto their lives and, and now that the IPCC has said we've got 10 years, it's actually reduced that sort of oh, we've got to do something by 2050. Actually, people are able to say, hey, in 10 years' time, my two-year-old will be 12 or my nine-year-old will be 19. Mm. And it's actually helped them bring 
their concern forward, I think, and be a, and it helped engage a lot of people because I think a lot of parents were they're so busy they they weren't able to engage with climate change as another thing in their lives, mm-hmm. and I think it shifted them to suddenly think, oh, my God, my children are going to be impacted on this Mm. and it's not a distant problem and it's made it far more um tangible so Mm. it's actually sadly that that experience for them has actually helped i think build some more concern in the immediate Mm. and maybe Mm. might help Mm. build a a bigger movement of Mm. facing reality and Mm. the urgency of the crisis Mm, absolutely and even parents of um who i've met throughout through work and just um whose kids are you know school strikers they're Mm. coming home with this information and Mm. all of a sudden the parents are like oh i'm on board too like let's do this let's take action Uh, christine i wondered if we could bring you in on this because i'm aware that you're a parent yourself Mm -hmm. and um involved with XR ex- Extinction Rebellion Families and Parents for Climate Action. So you're really involved in the parenthood climate change space. Could you tell us a little bit about, about that and your involvement? Yeah, sure. So I think, um, first of all, I think Carol and Sally are, are absolutely right that um, anything that can bring the abstract back into that concrete tangible is, is really helpful. And children, you know, you they're very tangible. You can't ignore them if they're there <laughs> in the room. They will make themselves known. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> and so, um, yeah, as part of um, XR Families, we've been trying to, to organise a range of uh, activities for parents to, first of all, just connect. So there's the, the online space to be able to connect and just hear other people going through that process, you know, which talks, which harks back to what we were talking about before, just having somebody else... Um, understand you coming to sort of to that realization but also you know as carol said it's really difficult when you're a parent to try and find the 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 time and the the thing that i find really difficult is i feel like on on one hand i i want to engage in collective action and I, w- I i believe that this is our our biggest chance that we have to address this crisis and so i want to do a lot of that stuff but um, you know, I mentioned before that when I threw myself in um, mm. and got a bit burnt out, I um, was doing so much of that that, you know, I came home one day and, and my my 10-year-old said to me, are you, are you going out again? Mm. <laughs> oh, it I breaks thought, your heart. Oh. Mm. And so, you know, uh, on the other hand, so there's the collective action, but on the other hand, I, I also want to, to raise children who are, who are aware and who will have the skills to live in a climate-changed world because we know that our, mm. that our world is... is going to get to at least 1.5 degrees as a best case scenario um, and, and that has its its own challenges and have a role model as well of you know yeah that's exactly right so try, trying to sort of balance those things how do we, how do I engage my my children and, and build their skills and make sure that they're aware and give them a, a voice in this but also you know take them to to um, collective actions as well so the Extinction Rebellion Families Arm tries to, to organise actions that are that are non-arrestable. So that although my ten-year-old is super keen, <laughs> um, classic. He, <laughs> he said, "Please, mum, can I please be arrested?" After the, the talk that I gave at Spring Rebellion that you mentioned before, he came up to me right at the end. 
please could I get arrested? <laughs> I appreciate your enthusiasm, but no, <laughs> unfortunately not. Um, but trying to have some activities where they can feel part of that collective action and they mm. can see that there are people there who are going to, to get arrested and that you don't have to do that. There are also people there who are not doing that and there are also all these different ways um, and encouraging them to have conversation with their with their friends and to you know to do all of those kind of things, but finding finding that balance and mm. finding the time mm. um, is is the real challenge. Yep, absolutely. And for for me personally, it's it, it's um, time is an interesting concept, and I often feel like I don't have enough time yet. There is always something, some space to be fi- found, and just when you do move into that space how rewarding it can be Mm. Uh, Carol and I are in the same group psychology for a safe climate and we have regular monthly meetings and often just before them I'm like oh I'm so tired I don't know if I can go I I sense this kind of resistance coming up and then when I go and I'm there I'm so nourished and I walk away feeling reinvigorated and even though it's way past my bedtime at nine o'clock. <laughs> That's how <laughs> I feel every time bed. I go to the gym. <laughs> I don't want to go, but when I feel like I want to exactly. get there, I feel better. Yes. <laughs> There's something intrinsically rewarding yeah. about collective community action. Mm. And I think this this is the difference of getting to um, emergency mode, you know, that Margaret Klein-Salomon talks about that we need to, to get to emergency mode and um, where, where things have their different priorities. And I, and I think... You know, anyone who's become a parent will know that at, at some point, a couple of years in, you go, what did I used to do with all the time? <laughs> I know. I, <laughs> I must have had so much spare time because I am now doing so much more. And and I've found it's the same thing um, getting to, to um, emergency mode is that it's, it's – um, it's you know realizing that there are these different kind of priorities and that and trying to the way I try and get around it is trying to convince um is is trying to um is trying to combine rather the Mm. family activities like spending time with my family and and getting out to to kind of actions Mm. um and I've got like a cute little story that I might tell at this point of, of going to one of the um I think it was the the school strike for climate the the big one in in September last year and we took all the kids and we went along and we were doing all these chants and my, my 10 year old who was super keen had the the um megaphone and was leading all these chants and and they thought it was just great and then about two hours in so we were there for quite a long time and my 10 year old said to my said to my six-year-old tom what are you what are you saying it's not climate it's not climate aston and tom was like <laughs> i didn't say climate aston i said Lyman Aston. <laughs> oh no! We realised that like the entire time we've gone. What do we want? And Tom's like, Lyman Aston. Oh bless. now, and it was just like <laughs> belting it out. So I oh, love it that they come up with their our, own particular yeah, meanings. Yeah. Look, We've been playing I Spy, My Little Eye with my girls and they're saying my spy, I Spy Mac and Bly and we're just going with it. <laughs> yeah. They create their new words. That's right. Beautiful. It's, it's, so that's our new world. So any anytime that we um, <laughs> are doing anything that's that's um, that's related, it's like, all right, come on, it's time to do some Lyman Aston. Yes. <laughs> Moments of joy, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Um, now, I'm conscious of, of time and I really want to get um, returned back to your book, Sally, and thinking about um, the optimistic nature of the book and how optimistic you are around human beings and their capacity to transform and and um, be more systematically, the systematic consciousness that arises. Can you speak a little bit about that? Because I feel like that's quite a 
a hopeful message when there's a lot of people out there who feel like humans are effed. Yeah. Look, I guess my my sense of hope or optimism is not that hope where I think everything's just going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're in really, really dire place, and uh, it's it's certainly looking pretty grim. And I feel, it, you know, I really feel that um, very deeply on, uh, at times. However, I do feel we have a real responsibility and a need to front up to life as it is now. And that involves everything from the gratitude you talked about. I mean, appreciating the beauty of the world that we might see out our window every day uh, and being fed by that. And understanding that we have ended up living in a culture, a mainstream culture here um, in Australia, which is really so unhealthy. Mm. And I I take... Uh, um, the words of Sally Weintraub, a psychoanalyst who's written a lot about climate psychology, and she talks about the culture of uncare, mm. of the neoliberal society. So, you know, it's not that I feel that everything's guaranteed to be okay if we act, but what I feel is that changing consciousness, and here in Australia we have the tremendous privilege and gift of an indigenous culture, a living culture of, you know, 80,000 years plus. Mm that has so much to teach us and so much wisdom. Um, And that will lead us towards an ecological consciousness and will lead us towards collaborative action and and will lead us into all kinds of um, ways of working systemically uh, that can only enhance our our lives as well as enhance our resilience in terms of facing what's what's to come. and so I want to I want to speak about that um, because I feel at times we get very trapped within this mainstream cultural worldview and we just go round and round in circles mm-hmm. um, and we're not going to get we're not going to find this we're not going to come into new myths new worldviews um, mm. deep cultural change mm. without reaching deeply beyond our cultural worldviews, mm. beyond the kind of psychological patterning that that's given each of us individually. Mm. Um, uh, and so it's opening particularly to indigenous cultures. And, you know, I come from Aotearoa. I know what a bicultural society looks like as it emerges and just the, that what that opens up for people. Mm. Um, and so that's the kind of things I wanted to talk about in the book along with you know the 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 other issues that we we do talk about in climate psychology like Mm. denial and Mm. and grief and Mm. and burnout and so Mm. on beautiful but just really beginning to put shape and narrative and visioning around what what are the alternatives uh, myths and ways of being Mm. in the world that are more around a culture of care or well-being great and just to acknowledge that there is within us all uh, an urge and a need for transformation. Mm. And it often doesn't take that much to really, you know, this the support of a good group of good conversations is mm. that encouragement. Also to listen within, you know, I, I do talk about the necessity of listening to dreams and including creative, you know, creative mm. visioning and so on, mm. and imagination. Yeah. Great. Well, we'll definitely be putting the link to your book in our show notes. And uh, I just wanted to open, I guess, the floor up, so to speak. I feel like um, 
our conversation has been and traversed many different subjects and very relevant and wondering if uh, there's anything on anyone's mind that is just kind of surfacing as we sit here together. I just wanted to take up what Sally, Sally was saying that um, the transformations within us and I think um, the work of Bob Doppelt around transformational resilience raises this um, issue of um, people being able to um, survive some terrible trauma and not only bouncing back but coming to a, a higher position of consciousness and able to um, make transformational mm. um, responses in their life that, that makes life completely different because mm. they've actually come through an experience that then has helped them determine what is really important to them. Mm. And I, I think that that's, that's a really um, encouraging Mm. idea and mm. and we know that people do that in mm -hmm. life we know of people who I think of the, the guy you know who survived, uh, survived down at um, um, Port Arthur mm. and you know what he did with the experience of losing his children and mm. his wife and how he just transformed his life and what mattered mm -hmm. and there are story after story of mm. people who've survived an adverse mm. trauma and and I think that within all of us we have a capacity if we'll dig Absolutely. deep enough to come through this mm. um, this t experience that we're going to, mm. you know, we're in and that's only going to deepen in, in mm. adversity mm. to mm. find a different way of, of focusing in life. Mm. I just wanted to add to that uh, Rebecca Solnit's work, R uh, Paradise Built in Hell, which is perhaps very significant for us right now, looking at communities as they go through disaster mm. and that while there is obviously, you know, problems and trauma and and all of that that they're also it, it creates a kind of a rip in the fabric of everyday life mm. where people come together in communities which we've also seen mm. because it, it tears away the everyday norms and allows a greater sense of connection particularly the times where life has been threatened and we understand how precious life is mm. and how much we depend and we live only in connection with others and with our, our place mm. and particularly with the bushfires with other beings um, so, yeah, there is something around the way we we interact with the grittiness and the at times trauma of of climate issues and climate catastrophes that does create a real opening um, for for transformation and building resilience. Uh, and I also wanted to bring in the work there of Rosemary Randall and Paul Hoggart, who have done work with. Uh, uh, long-term climate activists that show that the long-term climate activists have increased emotional intelligence, increased abilities around creative thinking and so on. So that there is a good win story Win-win. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably why this conversation has been so wonderful. <laughs> um, Christine, did you want to have... Yeah, I just um, related to what you guys were saying. I guess what I'm interested in, and this is... Um, kind of coming from a personal place but but as w as well as just trying to kind of get my head around this intellectually is um I've, I've been reading a, a lot about what you guys have been talking about the the transformation and and trying to sort of work through this climate journey to get to a better place um and we talked a little bit about before about the difference between you know abstract concepts and and, and concrete and tangible and what i'm currently kind of working on is trying to find 
the, the concrete examples of, of that abstract concept, con uh, of concept mm. and what that actually means. And I think um, for me, what I've been trying to do, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, is, uh, is although I'm very focused on the systemic change and the collective action that we need in order to do that, is that I have found myself coming back to do more um, personal actions and kind of individual actions at home with my family um, because I, I think that that's, you know, it's an example of kind of making an active choice to live differently, mm -hmm. to live by my values. And that although, uh, you know, I have started sort of thinking about things in terms of their relative carbon emissions and whether or not it's worth my while thinking mm -hmm. of that one or that one or that one. But in, and, and so for that reason, I, you know, was mm. more focused on the collective action. But what I have started doing is thinking, I actually do need to to do more of that stuff because it's it's making those kind of active decisions to do things differently and perhaps they can be that and al and also more connection to community more mm. more connection to um, um, you know to, to climate related community mm. and I wonder if they are the sort of concrete examples of that abstract concept of getting mm. through that transformation mm. what do you guys mm. Or if you got any other gems of how I can get to that tra magical transformed place. <laughs> Look, I think the point you bring up there about being true to your values and, and these changing ethics that come as we become more aware of ecological consequences of the way we live is important. And yeah, sometimes it gets caught in this kind of binary of, well, individual action's not going to be enough, so you know we shouldn't sweat about it. And I agree, it's not going to be enough. However, I think in terms of a kind of uh, uh, an ethical and a values choice that feels helps us to sit within um, this emerging ecological identity and especially mm. within a family situation to, to share that as a family mm. and through community is enormously important and meaningful mm. in making the kind of deep cultural changes that we need to make. Mm. I guess it's that kind of role modelling that, mm. you know, that you spoke about as mm. well um, as part of that. Well, I have taken so much from this conversation it's really been incredibly nourishing it's filling my heart up and particularly uh the ideas around that ecological identity i'm going to really uh, mull over that over the next few hours i think we need to wrap up i'm not very good with goodbyes i never quite know how to finish these wonderful conversations um but but in the in the spirit of gratitude thank you all so much for your time your energy your thoughtfulness your action your wisdom it's been an absolute pleasure to share this space with you thank you thank, thank you so much for Goodbye for now. thank you for joining us you've been listening to climactic the flagship podcast of the climactic collective a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community you can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective. Collective.